thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. We routinely see patients with dementia in our sleep clinics, but we often don't meet them until they present with a sleep complaint, such as insomnia or obstructive sleep apnea. We know that sleep and dementia have a bi-directional relationship. Is there a way to identify those who are at higher risk of dementia and intervene earlier? Is there a polysomnographic fingerprint? Should polysomnography be performed in those who are felt to be at a higher risk of dementia? How can we, as sleep clinicians, potentially impact the course of cognitive decline? Are there special considerations for our patients with dementia and a comorbid sleep disorder? Dr. Brendan Lucy is here today to help us explore this further. Dr. Lucy is a professor of neurology and sleep medicine. He is a section head at Washington University, and his current research interests are in sleep, aging, and Alzheimer's disease. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dr. Kosla. So let's talk about the bi-directional relationship between sleep and dementia. How does dementia change our sleep? That's a great question. We've known for a long time that individuals with dementia have problems with, with their sleep. There's a lot of different problems that can occur uh, in individuals with dementia, including they're, they're waking up confused, changes in the timing of their sleep, they're, they're awake uh, during the night or having insomnia, um, and they can have problems getting back to sleep. And this not only can affect the, the patients, but, but also the, the caregivers. And there's been an, an enormous interest recently in really looking at the caregivers and how their sleep is being impacted uh, by individuals with dementia uh, as, as kind of a downstream or, or secondary effect of, of how the sleep is changing in, in the individual with dementia. Um, and th these, these challenges can, can impact whether or not uh, that, that patient with dementia is able to stay in the home with that caregiver mm. um, or whether or not they end up having to, to, to move to an assisted living facility. So how does Alzheimer's change the timing of sleep? The changes in the brain that we, we see with Alzheimer's disease can affect the, the internal clock, the, the, the body's circadian rhythms. Um, studies have shown that uh, even in, in very early Alzheimer's disease, you start to get circadian dysfunction such as reduced um, amplitude of the endogenous circadian rhythms. So these are the, the, the changes that are occurring inside the body, like the oscillation of, of cortisol levels. Huh. But it's also been shown that, that uh, you can get dis disruption of the rest activity rhythms that are measured over, over days with, with, a, with, a, with an actigraph wristwatch that, that the, the, the amount of active rest activity rhythms is, is flattening instead of having robust activity during the day and then quieter periods at night. So is that something that maybe we would see somebody in clinic that had this, this sort of irregular um, sleep-wake cycle? Should that make us think about dementia? Or is it something that's sort of a later, that indicates that they've already been diagnosed with dementia, right? It's sort of a later finding. I think that's a really interesting question, and um, I think there's multiple ways to look at it. I, I think when you're, if you're seeing a, an older adult 
in, in your clinic who has a sleep concern, um, but they, you know, they don't have a, a cognitive complaint. So there's no problems with memory or thinking that, that they're worried about. Um, I, I think for that, that individual, you know, treating their, their sleep, their sleep disturbance, you know, making sure they're getting restful, restorative sleep is probably the, the, at this point, the best thing that the evidence says you, you can do. Hmm. There haven't been studies that show that if you intervene, um, you know, at that, at that, at that stage that you're going to change the trajectory of what, what might happen. Um, even, even if someone is already starting to show, uh, mem- memory problems, it's the, the you know, we're, we're, we need studies that show that if you say treat someone's sleep apnea and an individual has mild cognitive impairment, that, that it's going to result in, um, not just, not just improvement in their memory and thinking, but changing in the trajectory of, of their, of their progression of whatever the dementing process is, if it's Alzheimer's disease, for instance. Mm. Um, and then there are individuals who are further down the progression of Alzheimer's disease. They're more, they're more severely affected. And, and there, um, probably is a sleep intervention is probably not going to change the trajectory of their disease. And it's focused more on, on symptom management. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, helping to keep them in their home environment mm. where they're, where any sleep disturbances aren't affecting their caregivers to the same degree, depending on where someone lies on the spectrum of Alzheimer's disease, you know, from sort of preclinical, like asymptomatic, you know, they, they, they don't, they don't have any, any, any problems with memory and thinking versus moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease, your goals would, would, would be different in those situations. But you know what this kind of makes me feel though, is, is I kind of wonder if, you know, should we be doing polysomnography in like first degree relatives of somebody with Alzheimer's, right? Like, is there something, so we know later, right? A sleep intervention doesn't change things, but what if we, what if we identified them earlier, like, is that maybe something we should consider when we are, you know, doing imaging and spinal fluid testing and all of that stuff? There's a lot of, there's a lot of interest in using sleep as a, a marker for the changes mm. with Alzheimer's disease. And I think that's what you were, you're getting at with this, with this question. And the evidence isn't there yet to say that, yes, that's something we should be doing routinely, but it's something that I'm very excited about in my research because we have really good markers for the pathology changes mm. in the brain. So the accumulation of amyloid beta or the accumulation of tau protein um, in the brain, either with imaging. So we can, we can visualize that with PET scans. We can measure the levels in cerebrospinal fluid. And increasingly, we can do blood tests for uh, amyloid pathology. And, and, and now there's a new, uh, there's new evidence that we may be able to do that for tau as well. Oh, wow. And so we, we can, we can determine the, these, these, these pathological stages of the changes in the brain. Um, I think with, with great precision and increasing, decreasing, uh, uh, invasiveness, but what we're missing is, is a marker of the brain's function. You know, now we bring individuals into the clinic, we do um, cognitive testing where the participants will answer questionnaires that, that target either uh, sort of general cognitive function or specific domains. These, these are often done you know, in a research study um, at certain periods, periods of time, say once a year. Uh, they could be done in the morning at one, one visit. 
in the afternoon at the other, you know, they're, they're potentially time of day effects. Um, it's, it's very costly because you generally need a person to administer these, these tests. Oh, sure. Although yeah. increasingly they're looking to do them on, on the computer or on phones. Uh, but, but sleep is something that could be non-invasively monitored over multiple nights and give you a measure of, of how the brain is, is functioning that, that could go beyond the, the, the patholo the pathologic changes with amyloid and tau. And that's, that's my hope that we get there at some point where we can use, uh, sleep as that non-invasive, um, you know, marker of brain function to track, uh, both Alzheimer's disease risk and potentially even response to treatments. Hmm. So what do you think the most important sleep-related risk factor is for Alzheimer's? I mean, is this sleep apnea? I think that sleep apnea is a strong candidate for um, a sleep disorder that we could intervene on and potentially change uh, someone's uh, future risk of developing cognitive impairment mm. uh, for a couple of reasons. One, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of evidence associating um, untreated obstructive sleep apnea with increased risk of future, future cognitive impairment. It also has been associated with the pathologic changes changes in the brain. And there, there's some evidence that if you treat sleep apnea, you can actually affect the levels of, of these biomarkers over short periods of time. Huh. And so and so it's a, it's a sleep disorder for which we have a lot of different effective interventions. I think that where the evidence is lacking is 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 that we're going to treat the sleep apnea you know specifically to you know prevent prevent Alzheimer's disease mm. in the same way that I don't feel like we're, we're we're there yet for we're going to treat your sleep apnea and prevent you from having a stroke a second stroke um, you know there's studies that are ongoing to show that but uh, but I think in terms of improving sleep uh, reducing those respiratory events and all the uh, physiologic stresses that go along with them. I think I think that that sleep apnea is certainly one sleep disorder that that has a lot of evidence to support uh, treating and hopefully having a positive impact on uh, AD risk. So, what about insufficient sleep? Is that a risk factor? Insufficient sleep has been associated with future risk of um, cognitive impairment or problems with memory and thinking. Interestingly, long sleep has as well. Um, so, there's studies that have shown that both short and long sleep duration is associated with worse cognitive performance um, huh. over time. And I, what I think is, well, my hypothesis is that's going on there is that the, the, the short sleep um, may be a sign of insufficient sleep, that they're, they're not getting enough time. Whereas the long sleep, potentially there's, there's something that's disrupting the sleep that's making it less restorative. And so they may be doing a lot of time, but they're not doing good time. And many of the studies that have shown both the long and short sleep uh, duration is, is associated with um, future risk of, of cognitive impairment. They've generally, you know, had periods of time of follow-up of, you know, five to 10 years. In studies where they've had much longer follow-up, like 20, 25 years, the short sleep does seem to be the, the greatest risk factor of having future cognitive impairment. Oh, wow. It, okay. What, it, what may be going on is that, that, that you know, the, the, when these individuals are younger, like say in their 50s, the, the short sleep 
is is potentially a, a great a, a risk factor for developing cognitive impairment, but the but the long sleeping uh, is not. So I, mm. I think it it does depend on sort of where where someone is in their lifespan, um, and and also the relation of like what, when when they've looked at the sleep duration uh, versus you know how, how long they've they followed up their cognitive function. I love that you consider fifty young. I just turned 50 this year. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) What are some of the polysomnographic changes that we see in Alzheimer's? And and where I'm going with this is how do you know if it's maybe like an age-related change that you see in sleep architecture versus pathology? So we're, we're definitely not at the point where we do a sleep study and we see, you know, a certain sleep time or sleep efficiency or even percentage of slow wave sleep or slow wave activity that we can say that this person, you know, should be investigated for Alzheimer's Mm. disease or that we could pick them out. I I think there's a lot more research that's needed before we're going to be able to, you know, determine sort of someone have this disease like Alzheimer's disease versus controls based on, based on a sleep study. That being said, there are changes that are, are seen like decreased total sleep time and sleep efficiency, less slow wave sleep, less REM. And these are Alzheimer's disease patients, you know, compared to healthy, older, older adults, uh, which I think is an important comparison around your, your, your question. You know, we really need to look at um, Alzheimer's disease patients compared to, uh, you know, age, age match controls mm-hmm. who don't have Alzheimer's disease in order to to, to really pick out are these just changes with 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 aging um, AD patients can also have uh, longer uh, sleep latency and wakefulness after sleep uh, as well as more arousals as we as we talked about well because I think we've all seen those you know those studies where you look at the at the you know when you're reading your raw data right? And you see really, really fragmented sleep and you sort of see like a shorter amplitude of Delta, right? Or you just see lots of transitions mm-hmm. from sleep to wake. And, you know, sometimes you just pull up the hypnogram and I'm like, holy buckets. And I, you know, I, well, right. And I kind of wonder, I'm like, boy, no wonder they're sleepy. And then now I guess what I'm thinking of is, should I also be thinking that they, you know, maybe at risk of dementia or is dementia an underlying cause of this sleep fragmentation and, and these changes that we're seeing. Absolutely. Fragmented sleep, um, including, you know, measures like increased daytime napping, um, which you could, we could argue is, is, is fragmented sleep by moving some of it to their, their daytime period, indicating that the sleep is not restorative overnight. Mm. Um, that, the, the, those are all, you know, potential hallmarks of, of individuals with, with Alzheimer's disease. I think where we need a lot more research to to figure out how to apply this information is is in looking at individuals really early in the Alzheimer's disease process or even, you know, potentially before they begin to develop the changes in the brain with Alzheimer's disease. So the Alzheimer's disease has a, a very long, um, uh, we call preclinical or asymptomatic period mm. where amyloid plaque is forming. So in this, in this, in this asymptomatic period, which can run 15 to 20 years, individuals don't have problems with memory and thinking. 
and uh, but the, but they but they have been shown to have some changes in sleep. Uh, there was a study that was conducted here about ten years ago by my colleague Dr. Yoel Jew using actigraphy to measure sleep, and what she was able to show is in cognitively unimpaired individuals, so no problems with memory and thinking, those who had amyloid accumulation in their brain or were quote unquote amyloid positive, they had lower sleep efficiency, about 3% than those who were cognitively unimpaired but had no amyloid in the brain. So huh. um, they didn't have this preclinical phase of Alzheimer's disease. So we're starting, and this has been shown with a number of different sleep measures like non-REM slow wave activity, which is a measure of sleep homeostasis, sleep latency, um, and, and, and even sleep duration. And so, the, you know, you have these, the, the, some of these, these changes that are, that are occurring very, very early in, in the process. And, and the question is, you know, are, do, you know, do we have enough evidence yet to say that if someone comes in, they're cognitively healthy with no, no memory or thinking problems, does this, specific sleep parameter or say fragmentation pattern on a hypnogram indicate that there there's someone that we should be screening for Alzheimer's disease and mm. I think that we're not we're, we're definitely not there in my opinion with based on the evidence and where I think we're more likely to go is that with these blood tests that are being developed older adults will be screened for are they amyloid positive oh sure and then if they're amyloid positive we monitor their sleep going forward. And in the context of someone who's cognitively unimpaired, amyloid positive, you know, do we start to see changes in sleep over time that predict if someone's going to develop cognitive impairment and then, you know, start an intervention really early? Well, that's that's kind of what I was wondering, right? Is there a way? And I didn't realize a runway was so long, 15 to 20 years. I didn't realize that that's a pretty long preclinical phase, right? It's very long. Yeah. So then I'm yeah. kind of wondering to this idea, I get that we're not there yet with the data, right? But mm -hmm. when you when you look at that, you know, lower amplitude of delta sleep and you think about the, you know, sort of cleaning of, you know, the debris in the brain, to me, it kind of makes sense <laughs> that if you're not happy as much of that, it's going to build up more right. and maybe that's going to affect, right? Um, right. So you mentioned sleep fragmentation. Is that how sleep apnea impacts our risk for dementia or is it hypoxic burden? You know, what about cognitive arousals? Like what part do you think it is? If I had to pick something, I'd pick all of the above. Okay. Um, obstructive sleep apnea causes <laughs> so many different uh disturbances to, to the human body from, you know, the frequent arousals that you mentioned disrupting your sleep. You also have um, increases in blood pressure, um, you know, changes in cardiac function with each of the, you know, with, with the repetitive respiratory events and um, uh, it, it can, it can impact inflammation and metabolic mm. dysfunction. And all of those have been implicated in Alzheimer's disease risk. So if you just think about sort of big buckets of problems, you know, they got cardiovascular, vascular disease and metabolic dysfunction and the immune system, as well as the sleep effects. Sleep apnea is kind of hitting a lot of those mm -hmm. bu risk buttons, right? And so that's why I think that that potentially all of them could be could be playing a role. 
Well, and I feel like we are, as a field, paying more attention to these cognitive arousals, right? With the, you know, new 3% or arousal hypopnea rule, new-ish <laughs> hypopnea <laughs> rule. And, you know, just this idea of understanding that it's not all about the desaturation, right? It, it's about, right. you know, you've got something happening to the airway and there's some consequence, right? Your, your brain's waking up or you're desaturating or whatever that is, but that you know, when you have that, that really fragmented sleep for whatever reason, you know, you know that they've, you know, you look at it and you're like, they've got to be sleepy. Like this cannot right. be there. Ever, and I'm hoping it's just first night effect, right. In the lab or something, but um, yeah. And so, you know, it's funny because you've said that there's no data yet. Is this an active area? You know, if we're talking about does treating obstructive sleep apnea impact the onset of Alzheimer's is, is, is that a current area? There are there are s several trials, uh, none of which I'm involved in, um, that I'm aware of that are uh, looking to treat obstructive sleep apnea and see how it affects you know both cognitive function and and the the Alzheimer's disease pathology mm. or at least the markers of the pathology. And so I think I think those studies and these these are larger trials. There's been some smaller ones that have shown, for instance, that the more you lower the the AHI, the the greater you're going to reduce the the soluble levels of amyloid beta and tau in the fluid around the brain. But these really? would be. Mm -hmm, there was a, a study where um, uh, there was a study uh, led again by my colleague here, Dr. Yoel Jew, who uh, diagnosed. Uh, patients with obstructive sleep apnea and then performed a lumbar puncture the next morning. And then they were treated with CPAP for 30 days and uh, had another sleep study and then another lumbar puncture and it showed that the more the AHI was lowered, the, the, the more the, the soluble levels in the fluid around the brain of amyloid and tau uh, were decreased. Huh? So that's a, so that, that's but that's over a relatively short time, and it was a fair you know it's an invasive study. It's mm, a, mm -hmm. it requires a lot a lot of uh, those participants, given that it's you know two lumbar punctures in a relatively short period of time. Um, and ideally, you'd want to show that you can really reduce it over over longer longer periods. So re that reduction means that it's producing less tau. The levels of amyloid beta and tau in the cerebral spinal fluid around the brain uh, is influenced by production or release and, and the clearance. Mm. And, and both of those processes can be affected by sleep. So uh, amyloid beta and tau are released with neuronal activity. Uh, so when you're awake, there's generally more neuronal activity. You're going to be releasing more of these proteins, but there's also... Uh, uh, you know, an effect of sleep on clearance, where clearance is mm -hmm. is being um, increased, and we had we had we did a study of very small. It was only five individuals, but they they came back and did two different intervention arms, and so the the the, the first group would be you know control group. They came in the morning, and we placed lumbar catheters in their lower back and sampled the fluid around the brain, cerebral spinal fluid every two hours for 36 hours. And so they were awake during the day. We allowed them to sleep at night. 
Um, and then they were up the next day. So, so that was their, their 36 hour period, basically one sleep, sleep time. Mm. And then they, they came, they, they came back and they did a sleep deprivation group where the catheter was placed to collect the cerebral spinal fluid every two hours, but they stayed up overnight. And this was a behavioral, uh, intervention where they, they stayed up, you know, they were reading books, talking to the nurses, but not, no stimulants were involved. Okay. And we showed that if you you know if you do that the these proteins are, uh, increase about thirty to fifty percent overnight huh. um, in the in the fluid around the brain. But interestingly, with the sleep deprived group, they actually fell in the blood, suggesting that the they they were the, the clearance from the CSF to the blood was was being impacted by the sleep loss in some way, and that that. Th- that that was also raising the concentration. So we think that both you know, sleep loss increases the production uh, and release and also prevents the clearance. The clearance. That um, makes sense. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about the relationship between sleep and Alzheimer's disease. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Join colleagues and subject matter experts February 23rd through 24th for Sleep Medicine Trends 2024. Explore emerging technologies and innovations in sleep medicine that will enhance patient quality of care. Learn more at aasm.org forward slash events. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Brendan Lucy about sleep, aging, and Alzheimer's disease. You know, when we talk about trying to improve the sleep, you know, we've kind of hit on sleep apnea and we've hit on insufficient sleep. But what about insomnia? Insomnia has also been associated with um, future cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease risk. Uh, A study from Ricardo Osorio at NYU in 2011 had, had, had found that individuals who were cognitively unimpaired, complained of insomnia, had a greater risk of progressing to Alzheimer's disease. Mm. And so it, it certainly has been associated uh, with increased risk of developing AD. And I think a lot of it is, a lot of the work has gone into figuring out what, what's the mechanism. And we've talked about some of that already. You know, is it that when, when individuals are experience insomnia, they're awake when they should be asleep. Mm-hmm. And so that's increasing the production and release of proteins like amyloid beta and tau, as well as impairing their clearance. You know, we were talking with Chris Deppner a a while ago about those studies with insufficient sleep and cardiometabolic disease and how maybe part of it is also related to um, circadian rhythm mismatch, right? Because when you, when you try to induce insufficient sleep conditions, you're letting them stay up late, right? And you're shifting their circadian rhythm. And so that was kind of an interesting, um, thing that came out of that, that maybe it's not just insufficient sleep in isolation, but maybe there's a component of circadian rhythm too. Yes, absolutely. I, th- I think it potentially could. Um, I think that th- there's evidence, as we've already talked about, that circadian dysfunction has been associated with increased Alzheimer's disease um, risk. Um, I-, I think acutely, at least, we, we did not find that the changes in in our studies with uh, sleep loss, uh, and we were measuring changes over hours of amyloid beta and and, and tau in uh, in cerebral spinal fluid and blood. Uh, that that 
from the evidence we had was suggested that we weren't we weren't shifting their circadian rhythms over that short period of time. Mm. So we we had, we had measured uh, cortisol in both cerebral spinal fluid and and in the blood, and and we didn't see any uh, shifting of of their circadian phase. And I think it'd be a little surprising to 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 see something like that over over just one one night yeah. one night potentially. Yeah. But what I what I what I do think could be a contributor is if if someone's awake when they should be asleep, right? Then, then, then their their sleep behavior is going against what their internal clock is is telling them that they should be doing, and, and there's going to be a, a a metabolic and a physiologic cost to that, and and I I definitely think that could contribute to, um, you know, the, their their AD risk and, and increase it, and and certainly you know disorders like or you know shift work disorder, uh, I think. Um, you know, results in significant sleep fragmentation mm-hmm. and and potentially long term risk for for Alzheimer's disease and, and as well as numerous other disorders associated with uh, with sleep loss. So you know, we talk a lot about insomnia and treating insomnia with CBTI. Is it effective in this population with maybe some cognitive decline? Cognitive therapy for insomnia is very challenging in in patients who have. Uh, Alzheimer's disease. Mm. That being said, it's obviously uh, going to be the first line treatment that we would want to try uh, and, and avoid the use of, of, of medications just because of the concerns about the, the side effects that they that 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 they may experience from mm. from sedative hypnotics and and some of the things that people could 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 try um, that. Um, even in an impaired, cognitively impaired individual, may may be helpful. Um, would include, you know, planning ahead that they have uh, quiet nighttime activities before bed, sort of a settling down period. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if 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 patients are individuals with with Alzheimer's are getting up during the night, you know, having alerts that are triggered by wandering, like like uh, bells on doors. Mm. Uh, discouraging, you know, long, lengthy daytime naps and getting bright light during the day. More involved interventions um, like like progressive muscle relaxation therapy, for instance, might might would almost certainly be much much more of a challenge in an individual with symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. So, if CBTI isn't always as effective, are there maybe some hypnotics that we could consider in this population? Yeah, I, I think that you know, if, if behavioral interventions have failed and it, it's at the point where, where something needs to be done either for the caregiver's sleep or if they're in an assisted living facility, whatever whatever that specific circumstance is, you know, sometimes a hypnotic medication is required. Uh, one that I uh, have recommended if it if it comes to that point is is suvorexant mm. because suvorexant has been studied um, in 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 treating insomnia in individuals with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease and has an FDA add-on indication uh, for that and so based on on that study and, and that that data um, I, I that, that that's that is usually the hypnotic medication that I've I've um, uh, recommended uh, for, for patients. And I think the, the mechanism compared to a 
drug like zolpidem is more favorable because mm-hmm. in an instance of zolpidem and other sedating medications, you know, they're inducing sleep via sedation, whereas the dularexin receptor antagonists like suvorexin, mm-hmm. and there are others that have been approved since then, um, uh, the, the, they're blocking orexin, which is awake-promoting mm-hmm. neuropeptide. And so, so that, that mechanism may, may, may be the reason why it was able to be approved with you know, fewer side effects than are seen with others. Yeah, and I think that kind of fits clinically. You know, I'm just trying to think back mm-hmm. to our patients. And, and so I've been um, kind of pleasantly, <laughs> pleasantly surprised <laughs> by that um, because it is, it is sort of touchy, right? When you have somebody with, you know, cognitive impairment that you don't necessarily want to add anything that is, you know, potentially going to make it Absolutely. worse. Right. So Absolutely. I think it's always a conversation, right? And, and I feel like even though we know that the behavior is such a huge part of it, I feel like that burden falls really on the caregiver, right? To kind of say, nope, you got to stay up now. And it just feels sort of like this unfair burden that, you know, and then I think there's a little bit of blame too. Like, you know, the caregiver's like, I know I shouldn't let him nap in the afternoon, but I really have to go get groceries, right? Right. And and so I'm wondering how can we better support like the caregiver while still keeping, you know, the, the patient at home? And I don't know if there's an answer to that. <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, because it, it's hard. Yeah. I, I don't, one, I think the, the caregivers have um, an enormous burden in patients with dementia. Um, and some of the, the circumstances you described about, you know, let, let them sleep so that I can go do, you know, this, this task like grocery shopping or whatever it might be. Um, I think that that is something that's completely natural and caregivers should definitely not feel bad about, about that. And it, I think that the burden in that we have to be careful about is, you know, we're, we're asking them to implement this sleep therapy in addition to a lot of other things that I'm sure that they're having to do to take care of that individual, as well as just maintain their own lives. Um, and it, it, it can, it can create, you know, a a potential for, you know, some, some, some adversarial aspect to it. If they're really trying to, you know, say, say, keep them up during the day, discouraging, uh, lengthy daytime naps, or if they're waking up at night. And I think that caregivers just need to, you know, be told or given permission or however you want to describe it to Mm -hmm. that, that they, they just have to have a, a, a non-confrontational tone and just do their best to try to get them to implement that behavioral change. Um, and that, you know, it's not going to be perfect and that's okay. And I think that's such an important message. You know, I'm thinking back to um, some patients and, and, you know, you see them over years and you can see the cognitive decline and you can see the sort of change in personality Right. And, and I think mm-hmm. sometimes it is exactly like you're saying, this is ideal. We'd love for you to be able to do this, but we totally get that, you know, it's not always feasible and it's okay. Right. In medicine, perfection Absolutely. is the enemy of good. It is okay. Right. If you need a break, 
you need to take care of you too, right? And I feel like exactly. part of that, and I think it is like an important way to partner with that caregiver too, right? And and maybe maybe that's how we at least start with that support because, you know, we I don't think we are built to have a lot of respite care and a lot of home health and, and things like that, just sort of, you know, for this, for patients with dementia. Absolutely. I mean, you asked what, you know, what we can do for them. And I think that, there's there's certain there's certain support that the caregivers need that they sort of go beyond what we're really able to provide as physicians. It's more right. of almost a societal level of change that's that's required. Mm-hmm. And I think a recognition with the with the caregivers that you know cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is you know challenging for anyone. It requires you know generally pretty intense, you know, upfront visits and, you know, the uh, patients, you know, need, need to either come back frequently or have frequent interaction with mm-hmm. their, with, with who's ever implementing it. That certainly has been our observation. If the follow-ups three months later, you see them back and it's like, oh yeah, I, <laughs> I stopped doing that a week right. after the visit or something, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And so... <laughs> I think that there's challenges and there can be challenges in CBTI and in in any popu- population and and they're just magnified in in those with dementia. Yeah, for sure, right? Because you need to be engaged and you need to be willing to make the changes mm-hmm. and you need to really kind of invest that time and effort into, you know, changing these these behaviors and it's hard. You know, it's Absolutely. it's hard to do long term. So, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's a conversation that we need to keep having, though, I think, because we don't have answers now, right, to support the caregivers. But maybe we need to be thinking about that a little bit more and um, coming up with something a little bit more um, user friendly for, you know, like a modified CBTI, for example, you know, caregiver CBTI, you know, turn, you know, have the lighting that automatically goes, you know, up and down and whatnot. And, you know, to emulate, right. right? Like just, I don't know. There's studies, there's groups that are studying, you know, how to implement those behavioral interventions in this population. And I think that, that, you know, those will be exciting things to see, you know, what they're able to Define because this is an area where relatively low cost, you know, certainly um, low risk for intervention could have profound effects, especially if it's able to keep that patient, you know, mm-hmm. in the home with that caregiver. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's an outcome that everyone would agree is 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 the best one. Mm-hmm. And I and I think if you know, some- work. If it can work. And I think sometimes they're, you know, so tired that they don't maybe, you know, they're sort of in survival mode rather than sort of taking a step back and looking at it broadly, you know, and, and absolutely. And I think, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll tell people when we're talking about this and how important the lighting is, because sometimes that's sort of a, oh, this is woo woo. This is not real. Right. And I'm like, no, it's real. Like the lighting is important. And I'll tell them that, you know, the space station has lighting to emulate, you know, sunrise, sunset, (laughs) and it has all of that stuff, right? Because they need to make sure that they, you know, help the astronauts sort of have a, a circadian rhythm. And so when, when they kind of hear that, they're like, oh, okay, this is not like, you're not trying to sell me a light. <laughs> like right, this is right. this is actually important, and so yeah, I, I think it's um, we have to be we have to be willing to um, think about creative solutions. I think. 
Yeah, and that quiet time, you know, before going to bed is also becomes a cue that helps to 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 promote, I think, you know, better mm -hmm. better sleep quality and instead of in a routine, um, which is also sounds simple and can be hard to implement depending on what's going on with with the caregiver, right? Yeah. Um, and and their lives, but 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 could be could be immensely beneficial. Well, it's true, especially when they're both asleep on the couch, right? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so any final thoughts? No, I'm just uh, so thankful to you for, you know, highlighting this important subject around sleep and, and Alzheimer's disease. I think it's a, an area that has uh, tremendous uh, potential to improve the, the quality of, of life of, uh, of, of patients at risk for Alzheimer's disease or who have it. But but also there's some potential to, you know, to use sleep to monitor for Alzheimer's disease risk and even potentially prevent or delay the onset of symptoms. So there's, it's a very exciting uh, time in, in this area of research. I really am hoping that we get to a point where you can identify something in the EEG that's maybe predictive, right? Mm -hmm. And then you can intervene Absolutely. early. That's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping. <laughs> so I'm counting <laughs> on you to figure it out. <laughs> There's a lot of people working on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today and helping us better understand the relationship between Alzheimer's and sleep. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.